everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, I, it is Brandon back with Bull. Bri- what are we? Okay. <laughs> Let's see. I'm Brandon. <laughs> I'm Brian. You're Brian. All right. Now that we got that established. Um, <laughs> It's a little early to we be We got drinking. a fun episode for <laughs> you guys today. This is kicking off what I'm envisioning as SICU year or quarter or month. I don't know how long it's going to be, but we seem to be scheduling more and more surgical critical care topics, which I think is totally appropriate because I think we've kind of been neglecting them. I've been forcing Brian to sit through like this litany of increasingly obscure medical uh, topics, which he's very tolerant about, but... I think we've been kind of neglecting all the surgical stuff, which is important. And I know that a lot of people are practicing in that setting. Um, So I think it's very worthwhile. Uh, Before we get into that, we're just going to very briefly remind all you good people that if you're interested in supporting the show, which we rarely ask you to do, but if you want to see us still be here in a few years producing topics like this, um, you can go find us on Patreon and give us a few bucks a month. It'll just kind of help defray our costs and reassure us that you guys care. The link is in the, the show notes on icusnarrows.com. Or you can go to our little store and buy some merchandise uh, if you find that what you really need in your life is another T-shirt. We have released some new designs. Um, I see here a mug that says, um, ECMO is my first line vasopressor, which um, is, is a I think, a, just a, a salutary uh, life philosophy. Do you need an ECMO mug? No, but... Does anyone need ECMO? Many questions. Anyway, go check it out if you're interested. And for now, we will get into something a little more educational with um, Dr. Michael Kavnar here. He's a surgical oncologist down in Brian's neck of the woods at University of Kentucky. Uh, Been there a number of years after his fellowship in um, complex general surgical oncology over at Sloan Kettering. So he does a lot of work in GI surgical oncology, liver, pancreas, stomach, things like that, and research in GI stromal tumors and hepatic artery infusion pump chemotherapy, Um, heady stuff. But I think he's going to help us learn a few things with Brian here, particularly about the legend, uh, the Whipple. Brian, you want to take us away? Yeah, so the the Whipple is a sort of uh, famous thing in the surgical ICU world, right? A a famous procedure. We're going to talk a little bit about it. So uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. So we're going to start out. We're in the SICU. You have just left the operating room and you're dropping off a patient. Uh, And this is a 64-year-old gentleman who is coming in because unfortunately he has some pancreatic cancer and he just underwent a Whipple. Background on him, he has some, you know, the sort of what we would call the regular history, right? Hypertension, hyperlipidemia. He's a little pre-diabetic. His A1C is around six or so, uh, just controls it with diet. Has a little bit of sleep apnea, doesn't use a CPAP or anything at home. So, you know, the, the minor stuff. Uh, but you're dropping this gentleman off in the ICU, and the team is all there assembled. And um, so I guess let's start off with... What is a Whipple? Because we hear this, we talk about it, like Brandon mentioned, it is sort of a legendary procedure. Um, but m- many people may not really know what exactly it is, why you do it, who gets them, etc. So walk us through a little bit about what the procedure is 
and uh, who you do it on. And of course, we're talking about the surgery because this is from the era when you could name a whole lot of stuff after yourself. So and there's a Whipple yeah. triad and any number of other Whipples. But. Yes, Whipple's disease, Whipple <laughs> triad. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, I, I think the place to start is history, right? So um, Alan Oldfather Whipple was a surgeon um, that was actually at my alma mater, my med school alma mater, Columbia University, um, College of Physicians and Surgeons. And Back in the, I want to say it was like the 50s, he pioneered this operation, uh, which was designed to treat pathology in the head of the pancreas. So the, the head of the pancreas is defined as to the left of the portal vein. So it's about a third of the pancreas, but it's actually the most common site for pathology in the pancreas. Like pancreatic cancers tend to be in the head of the pancreas, um, in addition to bile duct uh, tumors, duodenal, ampullary tumors. Um, so when, uh, Dr. Whipple, um, pioneered this procedure, um, it used to be done over two days. So basically you would have your resection on the first day. And if you survived to the second day, you got to have your reconstruction. Um, this was in the era of, you know, no energy devices. Hemostasis was with, you know, clips and or ties and mostly just ties, sutures. Um, so obviously you can imagine that was a very high mortality operation. Um, so that's sort of the background to that procedure, which has surgically has dramatically improved over the last 70 years. So is the, so is this procedure still carry a lot of a high mortality or is it? So if you look, if you look nationally, it's, um, so for a, a major center, um, you know, it, it, it should have a mortality in the couple percent range, one or 2%. Um, okay. But there's very clear data in the literature that high volume centers have better mortality. And that's typically defined as kind of 15 to 20 whipples a year or pancreatectomies a year. Um, and, you know, it's a complex operation with a lot of steps. And, and that makes sense that if you do something more often, you tend to get better at it. And all of the little nuances to the operation, you're going to do a better job at managing those. So those of us who are in the ICU, we see these people after surgery. But what are, what are you looking at when somebody comes to your clinic uh, to, to have potentially have this surgery done? There's a lot of different factors. Um, so biologically, obviously you want to be selecting something that for which a Whipple is indicated. And that would typically be some type of cancer, um, most commonly pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, um, less commonly pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, um, also duodenal tumors, bile duct tumors. And there's a couple of different benign conditions, some pancreatic cysts, um, in, introductal papillary mucinous neoplasm, um, or occasionally pancreatitis. Um, and so essentially you look at the patient, you determine, do they have one of these indications for which it would be, um, indicated. And it's not something we take lightly because this is a very invasive procedure with, you know, a fairly high morbidity rates and, you know, a, a real mortality rate. So you look at the indication, um, and then within that indication, you have to look at sort of technical and biological factors. And when I want to say biological factors, this would be so say it's a pancreatic cancer, you need to do a good job of assessing that patient's biology. So is the tumor um, advanced um, in terms of has it spread to other places? So if it's spread to the liver or spread to the lungs, surgery is not going to help. Um, if it's spread to local lymph nodes, then it's probably a more aggressive biology, but surgery may help. And so part of your job is to s sort of figure out where in the biology spectrum the patient lies. 
Some of that involves blood tests. So there's a tumor marker level that we look at and higher levels indicate worse biology and so factors like that. So those are sort of biological factors. Um, Then there's technical factors. So where the tumor is relative to the portal vein and the superior mesenteric artery, those are the two major um, blood vessels going in and out of the intestines. Um, Quote unquote, resectable pancreatic cancers or pancreatic tumors have basically minimal interface with those vessels. And there's a borderline resectable category, which has some interface with those vessels and an unresectable, meaning that they completely involve those vessels and you can't take it out. Um, That's oversimplification. So that's sort of technical factors that can I do it? Um, And then there's patient factors that are just their general health. And so here in Kentucky, we face a lot of comorbidities, uh, all those things that you mentioned, but um, you know, in particularly there's debilitation and people who are suffering from pancreatic cancer specifically often have severe nutritional deficits. Um, You know, they have obstructive jaundice, they haven't been eating well for some time. Um, and, um, that has to be taken account for because those patients will not heal properly. If you try to do an operation that's poorly timed, um, smoking, heart disease, um, all those other things play into the factor. So there's this kind of overall, and many surgeons have this well-developed quote eyeball test. You kind of look at the patient and you say that no way, <laughs> um, or you say, okay, these are some comorbidities. We've got to manage those and figure out if it's going to be safe. Maybe we need to get a stress test or something like that. Is it safe to say this is always being done for malignancy? Uh, no. So, I mean, so there are several pre- pre-malignant conditions. So IPMN and um, uh, uh, several other things, but pancreatitis, actually, if you have a dominant stricture in the, the, the main duct and, and the head of pancreas, we sometimes do that. Um, but most commonly, it's malignancy. Okay, so when you're talking about the, the mortality of the procedure being, you know, I think reasonably low, yeah. right? Single digits, I think is what you said. That's the procedure itself? No, that's that's 90-day mortality. Okay, so that includes the mortality from the pancreatic cancer itself. So this is curative a lot of times or more, more, more palliative? Um, well, so it's, that's a sort of a nuanced answer. So, um, so, so just backing up, you know, on table death for that, for a Whipple would be incredibly rare. I've never been a part of one of those in my career. I hope not to be, um, I have seen patients die in the first 90 days. Um, and you know, most commonly when that happens, it's going to be from a complication. So, of which there's a long list of things that can happen. Um, now I have seen people rapidly progress and die in that period. Um, and that typically means you did a bad job of selecting their biology or selecting a patient with appropriate biology that surgery could make a difference. Okay. Uh, all right. So you're, you're bringing this patient up to the ICU. What is a typical, you know, based on what you've heard of this guy, a 64 year old gentleman, what is typically what are we going to see when you roll in the door? You know, one of the first things I like to see is where their hemodynamics land post-extubation. So, um, you know, intraoperatively, it kind of depends on how smooth the operation was. I, I try to, I uh, aspire to have smooth operations with min- minimal hemodynamic issues. But um, so, but as, as you know well, um, as you you know, take off the gas as you maybe dose the epidural, not that being one of the big factors, the epidural may get dosed. Um, there are hemodynamic changes, patient gets moved, maybe they desat for a second as they're moving. And what I like to see is kind of where the hemodynamics land. And one of the things that I most frequently see, and, you know, very, very regularly 
talk to the residents about is hypotension in that first 24 hours. And we really don't like to see that because, you know, I've just made three anastomoses. Um, and I manipulated the portal vein a lot. And if a patient goes and sits there hypotensive with a pressure of 60 for a couple hours, you can get portal vein thrombosis. You can have bowel ischemia. You can have ischemia to your relative ischemia to your anastomosis, which then is more prone to leaking. Um, so I, that, that to me is one of the critical things in that first bit. And so I, I often tell my residents that, okay, if the epi pressure is soft, you stop the epidural right away. Um, because, you know, we, you know, we often have to catch up and give a little fluid. We tend to do a relatively fluid restrictive approach in the operating room because it reduces bowel edema. There's literature to support that. But once you settle out, you often have to give a liter or two emboluses that first night. Um, and so I'm very, I'm very careful with epidurals, uh, which and I, I believe, you know, I believe strongly in epidurals for, for this in terms of pain control, but we have to be careful with them in that first day or two. Okay. So, uh, so other than the standard sort of things that you would expect with any post-surgical patient or any ICU admission, are there any specific things to patients like this in the like post-Whipple that you're going to write orders for? Yeah. So, um, just thinking about different things that are attached to them. Um, so we in our group all use uh, nasogastric tubes. Um, and so when you do this post Whipple, um, that tube is going to be placed, it's going to be around 55 centimeters. And so something I have seen more times than I care to admit um, is the nurse says, oh, that tube's not deep enough. And they go wham, and they ram it in 10 more centimeters. And the reality is we've taken out a third of the stomach. Um, so that now pushes it, the tube into the anastomosis, which is not optimal. So one of the things would be an order saying, you know, you know, if the tube falls out, you need to notify the doctor and don't just put it back in, um, you know, no advancement of the tube, um, that kind of thing. And obviously we would want the tube to suction. Um, we expect that tube to be bilious in nature because, um, of the way that the, the, the reconstruction is the, the contents of the stomach will always be bilious. So when the residents say, oh, their NG tube is bilious, we can't do this, we can't do that, it's, that's normal. So I would kind of coach the team on what, on what was expected. So that's the nasogastric tube. Um, the patient, at least for me, is going to have two drains. Some of my partners use only one. Um, I always like to see how, what the drains look like when they're handed off. And, and typically, this is going to be serosanguinous. Um, they sometimes may look a little bloody, just depending on on how things are. And so we have to kind of monitor that drain if it's bloody and is it really bloody or is it just kind of thin serosanguinous? Um, I don't like to see green stuff in drains. I don't like to see brown stuff in drains. So, and that would be rare as you're dropping them off, but for the, in the immediate drop-off period, you're really looking at, is it bloody and is there a lot of it? So like if, if a drain goes and puts out 300 or 500 milliliters of blood, I mean, that's something we need to know about uh, right away. So those would be typical, or, you know, orders about drain care, orders about nasogastric care, orders fully care. That's typical stuff. Um, you know, some blood pressure parameters that we're interested in, um, which is fairly standard stuff. But like I said, I, I, I am always very uh, cautious about hypotension. We briefly touched on this, but maybe just to review in this procedure, what are you doing? what's coming out and then what is being anastomosed because there's a kind of a lot more going on here than a lot of routine procedures and I, I imagine the understanding how the anatomy is changing and being reconstructed may help people understand things like complications yeah so the head of the pancreas is a um a retroperitoneal organ um 
And uh, basically, if you follow food from the esophagus, it goes into the stomach, goes into the lower stomach, goes through the pylorus, and then it goes into the duodenum. And the duodenum wraps itself around the head of the pancreas. Um, the second portion of the duodenum receives the ampulla, which is a confluence of the pancreatic duct and the bile duct. Um, and so when you do a Whipple procedure, you're removing all of this. So you're removing the entire duodenum, so D1 through 4. Um, you are removing typically the distal third of the stomach, and I'll get back to that in a second. Um, you're removing the bile duct, um, usually up to just above where the, the cystic duct, or the, which is the, comes from the gallbladder, enters. Um, the gallbladder comes out. You need to take that. That's, don't want to forget that. I've seen it happen. Um, and, um, and those are the main things. It also, obviously, with the head of the pancreas, um, all of the lymph nodes that are associated with that are typically removed, usually en bloc or together with it. But sometimes you'll go back and remove separate lymph nodes to kind of clean out that area if it's a cancer operation. Um, and then once you've done this, you have three anastomoses to create. So, um, you know, you have a, an anastomosis to the uh, pancreas. Um, so the, this is to the small intestine now, um, an anastomosis to the bile duct, and then an anastomosis to the stomach. Um, back to the stomach for a second. So the vast majority of Whipples are done, which is called a classic Whipple or a classic pancreatic oduodenectomy, which is the medical word for Whipple for not doing eponyms. Um, and that's most of them. So classic Whipple is you remove the distal third of the stomach. There is something called a pylorus preserving Whipple where you leave the distal third of the stomach and actually leave the pylorus. And instead you do your anastomosis to the, just past the pylorus. There are some theoretical benefits to this, which have not played out in randomized studies, but there are people across the country and the world that do pylorus preserving Whipples. I've done them in training. I've done a couple here. Um, I don't find them to be particularly better and they're a little bit more complicated. So essentially all of the Whipples done here at the university of Kentucky are classic Whipples. Okay. So you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, a lot of these folks coming in are sort of nutritionally deficient from their, their cancer. And now you're mm -hmm. taking out a decent chunk of the stomach and the intestine. What, what do you do for these folks in terms of nutrition? Are you feeding them internally? Are you putting them on TPN or are you just kind of letting them go on fluids for a couple of days and then things will heal up and they can eat again? Part of our job in the preoperative period is to make sure that they're adequately caught up to get through an operation. Now, they're not going to gain that 30 pounds of weight loss back, but I look at things like their pre-albumin, their albumin, um, their weight stability. So obviously, usually people are losing weight up until their diagnosis. And then, <clears throat> for example, if they get a biliary stent, that often turns things around and they will stabilize in their weights. So I'm looking for stabilization. Um, and I, I really try not to operate on people that can't withstand <clears throat> a few days of being MPO. I don't put them on TPN. Um, they have a nasogastric tube in overnight the first night, and then that'll get removed if they're doing well. They would then get some sips of liquids the first day, and we kind of gradually move them along each day um, until, you know, by the time they're discharged, which is, you know, average around day seven, you know, they're going home on, you know, food. But, um, you know, the average person leaves the hospital probably taking in 1,000 to 1,500 calories a day. So, um, all right, so you drop this guy off and you've got all your routine stuff in and everything seems to be going well. And that first night, 
goes fairly smoothly. And you're rounding the next morning on post-op day one, and you, you come in, and the nurse says, I've been having some issues with um, blood pressure, and currently his blood pressure is 95 over 45 with a map of 58. And you mentioned you know, you don't want hypotension. So what what's your approach to this? You, you mentioned, I guess, turning off the epidural. Um, is that the most likely cause at, at 24 hours out or it's, it's going to be either typically hypovolemia, um, or it's going to be, um, epidural related, much less commonly bleeding related. Um, but you know, I would walk in the door. First thing is, is the patient awake and alert or are they somnolent and out of it? So, you know, you assess them, um, if the patient is out of it or they're like, yeah, I don't have any pain at all, man. I feel great. That's probably the epidural, right? Because you know they should have a little bit of pain, um, and it, you you see if they can feel their legs, are they numb? And, and if if they're like completely densely blocked with the epidural, that's probably it. Um, you assess their fluid status, right? So uh, how's their urine output been after the last over the last few hours? Oh yeah, it's dropped off over the last few hours. Probably going to be hypovolemia. Um, and then I would look at their drain. So I look at their drains, look at the character of their drain. Um, you know, if it's kind of serosanguinous and thin and low volume, then chances are it's not a big bleed that's causing hypotension. Um, but, you know, if the drain is high volume and really red and, and I look at the hemoglobin and it's dropped three points from the post-op value, then maybe it's that. Now, post-op day zero to one you know, hemodynamically significant bleeding is very rare. Um, I've had in the, I don't know, probably 200 Whipples that I've done here, um, under one, under the, under one hand's worth of counting of, you know, running back to the OR for post-op day zero to one bleeding. Um, it's happened, but, and it's usually not subtle at all. Okay. And you mean like lots of blood in the drains and lots of blood in the drains and patient okay. is not doing right. well. Um, when you have bleeding, is it, is it pretty much always going to be in the drains or is there going to be some intraluminal bleeding too in the GI tract? Cause you're opening up the intestine in the stomach and are you going to see blood in the NG tube, blood yeah. in the stool, et cetera, or is it predominantly going to be in the drains? It depends okay. on the timing. Um, in that very early post-op period, most likely it's going to be in the drains, but not always because drains can get clogged with clots. So say a bleed starts slow and the clot and the clot forms and it clogs around the drain and then it bleed more and is no longer draining into the drain. So that's one thing that can happen. Um, and then you'd have to look at other things like, does the, is the patient newly distended and has kind of a firm abdomen? Um, are they very tender? So, you know, a big fresh hematoma seems, tends to cause peritonitis. <clears throat> so um, on exam, they would have peritonitis. Um, in terms of the intraluminal versus non-intraluminal, we definitely can see intraluminal bleeding, but it's usually not in the immediate post-op period. Um, <clears throat> the people that are going to get this are usually going to be people that are like a week out and they're getting a pancreatic leak. So they've got pancreatic juices leaking from their anastomosis that are kind of dripping down onto the artery, um, typically the gastroduodenal artery stump. And then when that opens up, um, that blood tends to track back into the leak, which is connected to the GI tract because it becomes the path of least resistance. Because by then, some adhesions have formed and, and allow that blood to be kind of trapped into that space, as opposed to post-op day zero to one when it's a wide open space that the blood just expands into that surgical space. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. 
Um, all right, so you've you've got this guy, and uh, he's looking pretty good. Um, he is complaining of some pain. You, the, you stop his epidural. It doesn't seem to really help his pressure all that much. So you're going to give him some fluid. Do you have a preference, just LR? Yeah, I typically use LR. Um, some of my partners prefer, um, you know, half normal saline um, with – uh, potassium in it, but um, I, I don't have a huge preference. And so, like, if mine gets put on one or the other, I'm not going to get real excited about it. So, but you notice the drain output is, you know, a significant amount. Uh, and the nurse says she's concerned because she feels like the drains are filling up really quick, and I'm, I'm emptying them a lot. What's a what's a significant amount of drain output that they should be concerned about? I think probably. 200 milliliters or more. Um, one of the things that we do see sometimes is if you do a really extensive lymphatic dissection, sometimes you'll see lymph fluid that drains and can be a fairly high volume even in that early period. And so, but that's typically going to be much more clear to serosanguinous. Whereas if you see basically straight blood looking fluid, bright red, and that's 200 milliliters or more, um, you know, that's concerning. It, what if what if they're seeing a decent amount of this sort of clear fluid? It's not bloody, but it's uh, like you said, it's just sort of clear, maybe even slightly serosanguineous fluid. But it's a, a decent amount of it. Uh, are you are you concerned, or is it just an indication that maybe that they are going to need a little bit of extra fluid resuscitation to keep up with their fluid status, or uh, are you concerned that there's a complication going on? Um, it's not uncommon to have a high drain output in the first couple of days. Um, it's more something I'd make note of, um, you know, if it's a lot, like more than a liter in the, you know, 24 hours, you know, maybe you do need some extra fluid. Um, not necessarily indicative of a, a complication, but just something to watch closely. He's looking better. You give him some fluid. He's, he's getting, getting stable. But then that night you get a call and they're saying, uh, he's having a little bit of respiratory distress, so n- not bad, but he's having a little trouble breathing, having uh, trouble getting a good deep breath, and his sats are sort of falling. He's increasing oxygen requirement, increasing work of breathing. Yeah, so um, just like anything else, you go to the bedside and got to look at the patients. Um, are they you know, awake and alert, or are they somnolent? If they're pretty somnolent, you know, I, I, I'm worried about over-sedation. Did they just get a bunch of pain meds? think about those things because obviously those are reversible, treatable things. Um, you never get lucky like that. So it's never something that easy. Um, obviously you would be ordering a chest x-ray, make sure the oxygen is actually working and it's on. Um, if the patient's awake and cooperative, getting them to take some deep breaths and do an incentive spirometer, if, you know, if, if that's just, if it's just atelectasis and poor inspiratory effort that can correct the issue. <clears throat> but then you're also looking at the hemodynamics. And so say they're, tachycardic to 130 and you know their sat is really low then you start thinking about other things like pulmonary embolism or is it an arrhythmia is it is it afib and is that the source of your shortness of breath you know typically you're not going to have aspiration issues in the first day um, what day did you say we are we're a couple days out now so yeah we're like post update two we've if we've already taken out the ng tube people do aspirate um, so that's one of the things that would be on my, on my differential. So obviously a chest x-ray can help with that, but not always more oxygen and potentially converting them to something like high flow or a face mask. Um, we are a little leery of doing, um, BiPAP in these patients, um, specifically because, you know, we know some of that pressure is going to be transmitted to their anastomosis. You know, they've got an upper GI anastomosis and, 
And we don't typically like that. I mean, you can always put in an azogastric tube, but then that kind of stents open the esophagus. And um, so our preference, if at all possible, is typically to avoid BiPAP in these situations. Even if somebody, and so we usually, if somebody is a home BiPAP user, we usually don't let them use it unless we absolutely have to. So you mentioned like if they're a home BiPAP, home CPAP user, when can they go back to their regular or when can... When can I put them on that in the ICU if I need to? I mean, I think the um, there's not a set guideline. Um, I, my preference is longer than longer than shorter. Um, I think if I had to pick a pretty good magic number, I would probably say about two weeks would be great. Now we we can't always do that, and sometimes we have to just bite the bullet and make a decision. And typically, this is a shared decision. Like, you know, the critical care team tells us how bad the oxygenation is and how much they think. BiPAP is going to help. Do they think that they're heading towards intubation? So maybe should we just intubate the patient? Or is this somebody who just needs a little bridge and we can just kind of carefully follow? Um, and it's a multidisciplinary discussion. I mean, I, have I let people go on to BiPAP? Yes. But I don't like to just walk in and be like, oh, yeah, we brought our BiPAP machine from home and so we threw it on. Um, that that we don't like. Um so it's a sort of a complex decision. And just, you briefly mentioned pain. Is this generally a painful procedure on the spectrum of surgery? Yeah. I mean, it's a midline laparotomy that extends usually from the xiphoid to um, below the umbilicus. Um, we use uh, a pretty powerful retracting device so people can have some pain from the rib retraction. Um and so, yes, there's no like minimally invasive whipples. Th there are. Um, so there are people that do this both laparoscopically and robotically, and that's a separate discussion. Um, there's a lot of controversy about that. Um, you know, my personal opinion is that, you know, the size of someone's incision typically isn't what drives their complications. Usually it's pancreatic leaks and other infections that, that drive those. Um, there are expert centers that have really good outcomes with minimally invasive whipples. Um, we, we here at UK d d have not done those, and, and you know, uh, our patients are often not amenable to those too, if based on that sort of some of their factors. So far from the standard. Uh, and you said you guys will often use epidurals, which I'm sure helps with the pain. Um, do you find that can limit your ability to assess these patients? I mean, is it difficult to say if they're having increasing abdominal pain, for instance, because they have a block? You know, we use it in almost all of our major surgeries, so I, I don't consider that a barrier. I think that's just that I consider that the norm, and so that's just part of the algorithm. Is whenever there's a problem, it is the epidural the part of the problem, and you just have to be thinking about it. Um, okay, so let let's say I'm uh, you know I'm working in a in a surgical ICU, and I'm fairly new. Um, what are the other things that besides stuff we've covered, what are the other things that I really need to be aware of sort of as your eyes and ears in the ICU? Like what are things that you want to know right away about? I think the, probably the most common thing that really requires education to prevent bad outcomes is knowledge of what we call the sentinel bleed. Um, and so Pancreatic surgery um, is associated with a fairly high rate of pancreatic fistula, and so for a Whipple procedure, this is in the ten to twelve or ten, sorry, ten to twenty percent range um, nationally, and for a distal pancreatectomy, this is in the uh, twenty to thirty percent range. And what that means is that pancreatic enzymes, which are designed to digest food, are sitting on tissues, and those tissues are essentially being digested. Um, 
and specifically, there's um, an arterial branch. So the hepatic artery gives off what's called the gastroduodenal artery or the GDA. And to do a Whipple, you have to divide this vessel. And so there's a million ways to divide it. You can staple it. Most people put a um, suture ligature, a, a tie, and a clip, sort of belt and suspenders and duct tape. Um, but the problem is that if you have a pancreatic leak, that pancreas juice then sort of marinates over that little area. And what can happen is that that can open up and digest the tissue and it can start to bleed. And usually what happens is it's not just doesn't just start massively bleeding all at once. Usually there's a little squirt of blood. And um, what will happen is you will see a fresh streak of blood in the drain that was previously not bloody. Um, and when somebody sees that, that's an immediate phone call to the surgical team. And if it's an overnight covering intern and they're like, oh, it's fine. No, the answer is it's not fine. This needs to get bumped to a senior level. And so, you know, the expectation is someone with experience comes to the bedside immediately. Um, and, and, and when that happens, the patient should immediately go for a, um, basically a CTA. Um, now, it could be a formal CTA, like ordered as a CTA, but actually if you just get a pancreas protocol CT, that includes a CT, basically an, an angiogram phase. So um, I, I usually just order a CT pancreas protocol. Um, the difference being that you get um, abdominal radiologists to read that instead of vascular radiologists. Um, but so a lot of time the, the, that streak of blood is usually in the setting of a drain that we already know is a leak. So we monitor those drains every day. Um, and what you'll see in the days preceding that is it will often turn from serosanguinous to sort of murky, tan, brownish, Sometimes it looks even a little bit like coffee grounds in that first day as the blood products are getting digested by the pancreas juice. Um, and so usually you will, see, you, you will have already known that this was a leak and, um, and you'll see those streaks of blood then because it may be minutes to hours to even a day before the, um, the, the, the full event happens. And what basically what's happening is a pseudoaneurysm has formed at that, at that uh, GDA site and that is something that can be intervened and that patient's life can be saved. Once the patient has a massive hemorrhage, the mortality is high. I mean, probably upwards of 30%. Um, and um, so, you know, that recognition, it can be life-saving. And I, I've, you know, our team has been trained very well on this. And I, I mean, I have some great examples and even pictures of Dr. Kavnar. You have to come see this patient right now. There's a streaks of blood and we just send them right to CTA to CT. And I usually actually call IR as that's happening. I say this patient, I don't care what the CT shows. They're getting a, they're getting an angiogram. Um, so that, that, that's, that is a critical thing that all ICU members from, you know, nurse to APRN to physician need to know. And when you say streaks of blood, you mean a sort of a, a signal of fresh blood in the drainage that's not the general tint that it's yeah so it's usually going to be a different color and then there's a something new in there you're like what's that so this is something you mentioned ir so this is something that can be fixed in ir typically or is this a return to the operating room or so by the time you're getting a pancreatic week and you're you know typically in the one week range out going back to the operating room is very treacherous because everything's stuck together and even if you found that artery if you try to put sutures in it, it's just going to tear and make a bigger bleed. So the way that we deal with this is uh, IR um, does an angiogram. They will get a catheter into basically right where the pseudoaneurysm starts. They will put some coils into the pseudoaneurysm. 
and they'll usually put a stent over the origin of the pseudoaneurysm. Now, if the patient is bleeding to death and they can't do that and it's they just technically can't do it, we will actually coil embolize the entire hepatic artery. Just take the whole thing out. Patient will live. There's complications that happen from doing that, but they'll live. Because um, obviously, if you bleed to death, you don't live to have those complications. What else do we need to know about uh, the Whipple and about patients with pancreatic cancer that we've run across in the ICU? Um, so a couple, a couple of things that come to mind right off the bat. So uh, glucose management. So these patients are often, you know, pre-diabetic or diabetic. Um, you know, so their insulin, their glucose control can can and often does get worse during the time of surgery, you know, both from removing functional pancreas, but also from adding the stress response um, and all of the things associated with that. Um, so, and you guys are great at managing blood sugar and that's rarely an issue. You know, there's a couple of, you know, these new SGL2 inhibitors. We've run into a couple of patients that have had really weird responses when they haven't had a good washout period. And they, they sort of, they, they have, some very strange physiologic things that happen where they'll have, they'll be very acidotic and, but they won't have an elevated lactate and you're trying to resuscitate them and usually it ends up just being fine, but there's usually a couple of days of kind of hand wringing while you figure out what the problem is. Um, so that's the blood sugar, um, control thing. The other thing that, um, we often have to deal with, um, especially if someone's in the ICU for longer and they have maybe some post-operative complications and they stay for a while, is the pancreatic the the exocrine pancreatic insufficiency or EPI, um, and this is like your people that you know they've had some complication and now we've gotten to a point where we're feeding them you know either be tube via tube feeds or enterally. And I actually have a patient in the ICU right now who's got run into this, um, and that usually manifests as diarrhea, sort of steatorrhea, um, and that. You know, so everyone's like, oh, they have C. diff and we have to check all the tests and it's negative. And usually you just have to think about it. You say, oh, well, we need to give them Creon or pancreatic enzyme supplements. Um, so that's another um, just routine issue. Um, another thing that we, we like to make sure our patients are on um, uh, acid blockade. So typically a PPI because you know, people can get, they are prone to ulceration in the stomach, especially if they have a prolonged or complicated stay. So these patients all need to stay on those, um, those um, drugs. Um, Brandon, you have any thoughts? Gosh, no, I, I think this has been a great look at this topic. I, you know, the historical perspective I think is helpful. Cause I mean, I, I, I'm not a surgeon and was not around 30, 40 years ago, but I know the trajectory of this procedure has kind of transitioned from this, you know, I guess how a lot of surgical procedures start where it seems a little crazy and the morbidity mortality is, is very, very high. And, and now it's, it's pretty routine. I remember when I was, when I was training at Hopkins, they had just, yeah, someone had just finished up their 2000th Whipple there. John, I think. John you know, Cameron. Become John a, Cameron. That's right. I think he's, I think he's finally retired now, but, um, so, you know, it, it's great to see this from the outside because as a as a hands-on procedure, it really shows, I think, our, our mastery of at least one little area of medicine. <laughs> but it's so important, I think, to understand something of the surgical aspect from our critical care world, too, because, you know, like we're talking about pseudoaneurysms and things, they would never be on someone's radar if they didn't learn that specifically. You know, you can do kind of, quote, routine critical care for these people and miss these signs. And of course, the surgical teams often rely on us to notice these things because they, you know, they're not sitting around 24 hours staring at these patients. So obviously important to involve the surgeons, right? I mean, we, it, the goal is not to replace them in the post-op period, um, but that kind of vigilance in a 
uh, well-trained way, I guess, is always going to be important. Yeah, I mean, you know, Brandon, we've talked about this before. My my thoughts on this is as we're getting more and more non-surgeons, whether that's pulmonary medicine-trained physicians, anesthesia-trained physicians, or APPs, who are managing surgical patients in the immediate post-op period in the ICU. And as non-surgeons, you know, I feel like I'm at a disadvantage a little bit because I don't know all the nuances of what goes on in the operating room and what to look for. So I think things like this are really helpful. You know, like what should I be paying attention for in this particular case? Yeah, and just framing it. You know, I I would have said, you know, if I'd never seen a Whipple that, wow, this is like a, it's like some kind of surgical catastrophe must be. Everyone comes out really unstable and this is like recovery is difficult. And it's just, it's just not that way, at least not anymore. But it doesn't mean there's no considerations. Yeah. My average blood loss is about 100 to 200 milliliters for a Whipple. Um, and, you know, I've had people go home on post-op day four. So um, it's a procedure that can and should usually be routine. Um, and But there's a very long list of things that can happen. And I, I, if, I, if I could sort of make one sort of highlighted point, it's that it's communication between the ICU teams and the, the surgeons. Um, we each have different perspectives and you know, I, I miss things that you guys pick up and vice versa. Um, and I think that the communication part is critical. If something seems funny, you got to talk. And as you said, a routine, th- complicated things are routine when you do them a lot, right? Yeah. So high volume centers, a Whipple is something you do every day. Um, I don't even know how many smaller centers are, are doing these, right? Or it would be kind of a big deal. Yeah, I mean, they, they do them, but the, the outcomes are, are well documented to be worse. Yeah, you know, we, we, we do, I think we do around 150 pancreatectomies a year. It's between 100 and 150, probably about half to two thirds are Whipples. And, you know, that results in a couple of patients a year that have bad complications. And, I know Brian knows a few of mine, um, and uh, so we got to be ready to deal with them when they come. Well, I I can tell you just from my experience working in a community hospital versus an academic center um, with procedures like this, the night and day difference in you know when I came to UK, there were I had a list of surgeries that I were on my I would never consider list because. I'd taken care of patients and they all did badly. And then I come here and they all do very well. And I think, like you said, it's the difference between a place that does five or six a year versus a place that does a hundred a year. So well, and the ability to make things boring and kind of pathway like that comes down to the training and preparation. I mean, when things are routinely getting exciting, it means that you have not established a good way of doing it, which may be that no one knows what it right. is, or maybe that your center is not right. well oiled at it. But yeah. all right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I think this has been super helpful. Um, I hope that the, well, the sick you series of, uh, like Brandon said, indeterminate length at this point um, is helpful for folks who, uh, you know, the operating room and the SICU as an extension of the operating room is sort of a little bit of a uh, of a black box to those who don't work in it. And hopefully this is helpful to see a little bit behind the curtain. So thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.